If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. This week, it's the return of the giants. Yeah, we're going to the Middle East and speaking with a biblical scholar who has found new evidence, new evidence in the Bible for giants. And we're not talking just Goliath, the well-known giant of the Bible. We're talking about giants who migrated from the Middle East, who settled in present-day America and were the mound builders. These are intellectuals. These are actually very advanced giants that very few people know about who are now considered ancient American giants. Later, Jindeo takes us to California and the Mojave Desert, where we find evidence of tools that were cut 40,000 years ago. This was a, a stopping point for people migrating into the Midwest, and these tools are outstanding. All this in the news today on Earth Ancients. Saturday, April 25th, 2020, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Hello, hey, welcome to Earth Ancients. This is Cliff, your host. I hope you're doing well, and uh, welcome to the program. How you doing? How you holding up uh, during this pandemic? Are you in uh, a state that is... Uh, uh, allowing you to go out and uh, mingle again, or are you uh, stay-at-home, uh, self-isolating like we are here in California? It looks like we're not going to be able to get out uh, until May 15th, uh, which is, you know, another month almost. And that doesn't even guarantee that we're, we'll be able to do what we used to. This is going to forever change how we interact with people. And I mean, I can't imagine 
the restaurants and the uh, brew pubs and the bars and places where you mingle, like even the gym, even the gyms are, are going to change. I, I mean, it just is going to change us forever. And uh, so we just got to take it one day at a time. One, one of the things that I'm finding is that I'm sleeping, <laughs> sleeping longer, even though I get up at 730 in the morning, I'm going to bed early. I take a I, I take a nap about two o'clock, three o'clock. It's kind of a meditation, actually. It's not really closing my eyes and going to sleep. It's more of a meditation just to take a break. And I'm, I'm relaxing more. So there are some benefits to this. I I mean, I'm as productive as I have been. Um, but I don't know. There's a psychological aspect of this, too, that uh, isn't being thought about is being isolated and not being able to mingle. I, I've been doing Zoom with friends and family, but not seeing and hugging and uh, hanging out, being close to people is, it has its uh, uh, drawbacks. And, you know, I, I haven't read anything about the effects of this, but uh, there are going to be effects. Uh, I hope they're not long-term for people, but... Um, you know, self isolating is is a challenge. It's a challenge, <laughs> and it's like, what the hell? What are we supposed to do? Stay home for the next year? I, they're gonna have to figure something out. You know, I, I fully expect to be walking around with these uh, uh, face masks, these masks to, uh, where you go. Uh, I I don't know about the gloves, but uh, until they can figure out an inoculation, a vaccine for this this flu uh i'm very you know suspicious about doing much of anything you know and i have friends that have compromised immune systems i have uh, friends that uh, uh are elderly uh that uh you know uh, the body doesn't work the same as you get older doesn't process the same doesn't isn't doesn't have the same resistance to illness uh immunity uh, and so they have to be very, very careful. And people are scared. This is a scary deal. So uh, let's hope that this gets over quickly. That they can uh, uh, worldwide, they can they can uh, find a vaccine, develop a vaccine, and and away we go. So can you imagine? Can you imagine what books are going to be written about this? The great pandemic of 2020. I mean, think about it. It's going to be the world stopped for. You know, and it was forever changed in March of 2020. I don't know. It's just <laughs> uh, the the stories, you know, the the governmental uh, workings and non workings, the socializing. Uh, I mean, there's stories in, in every aspect of of uh, human nature. You know, uh, meeting with people, isolating pe- with with uh, yourself, with family, uh, work. You know, uh, if you work in an industry where you're interacting with people like foods, uh, restaurants, grocery stores, bars, uh, what's the story? You know, what's the story about this? You know, so I I imagine there's going to be books and books and books. And we're going to look back on this and go, you remember the pandemic of 2020? (laughs) What were you doing? What were you up to? Something to think about. It's interesting. Always interesting. We're doing our part here on Earth Ancients. Uh, we have uh, our weekly 
free ebook. And this week I just posted it. The new book is called Atlantis Pyramids and Floods. It's by Dennis Brooks, came out uh, in 2016. And he actually uses uh, some of Edgar Casey's material to locate and find different areas that he believes were settlements for Atlantis. Now, uh, this is a, about a 200 page book. To get this free ebook, you got to go to you got to go to Facebook, you got to go to Earth Ancients, and you got to find the group page. I'm not going to post it on the international page. There's just too many problems with that. And um, when you go to the group page, there's the photo of the book. There's a long lead-in by uh, Dennis who wrote the details. We actually had Dennis on the program uh, uh, when this book came out in 2016. I think I might even – I might post it uh, on the Facebook page so you can have something to kind of listen to. But the details of the book are on the Facebook page. And then the PDF file is adjacent to it. It's, in other words, uh, when you scroll down, Facebook, you got to scroll, scroll, scroll. You'll see it. It's separate from the actual book because it's such a, a large PDF and it wouldn't – uh, it didn't attach itself, so I had to attach it uh, in a different location. But check it out. That's the free ebook for this week Atlantis Pyramids Floods by Dennis Brooks. Pretty fun book, very interesting, uh, fairly well researched, too. So he takes a lot of information, not only from Casey, but from Plato and from some other Greek writers. Uh, Herodotus, I think he has um, some stuff from him in there. So. Check it out. That's uh, our way of, of saying, you know, hang in there with Earth Ancients and here is something to help you buy the time. Something to read. It's a digital book, so you got to upload it into, oh, one of many uh, systems. If you have a, a phone, you can read it on your phone. You can read it on your laptop. I guess you could print it out, too, if you wanted to get a hard copy. So anyhow, I hope you enjoy that uh, that free gift. There are a number of very, very anomalous buildings in Mexico, and one of the most one of the strangest buildings is in a place called Calexlahuaca, Mexico. Say it again, Calexlahuaca, Mexico. It's a circular building, uh, and I uh, have posted some information uh, about this building. Uh, I uh, posted an image. Uh, but I also am in the currently uh, writing an article. I mentioned this before. Just a couple of days ago, I got a call from Jim O'Conn, who's the forensic engineer. Uh, he's noted for his work on the uh, 9-11 scene in New York. He did some anal analysis there, but he's also done other uh, research. Jim and I uh, have been friends for a few years. He He's now in his uh, late 70s, but he he was an early research investigator on uh, Mayan buildings and, and structures, and, and uh, he's written a number of books. His, his best-known book is The Lost Secrets of Mayan Technology. But anyhow, I sent him this photo of this, what they consider a temple uh, at Calox Lawaka, and he immediately said, this is not a temple. This is, an, this is an observatory. And when I sent him the interior portions of this book, he, he was like, I've never seen anything like this. So I'm finishing up this article. I mentioned before it's going to be on the 
uh, Ancient Origins magazine, but I will make it available to you on the Facebook Earth Ancients uh, page under groups. You got to go to the group page. And when you see the interior workings, how the water was circulated into uh, the guts of this thing, into the different levels, and, and it's predicted it's between 30 and 40 feet deep underneath the surface, uh, some kind of tunnel system. Water was brought in, circulated, and then pumped out, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's it's beginning to, to feel more like a, a some kind of a energy generator or something, uh, unknown energy creation. You know, I say it again and again. We just don't know what the science and what the physics was uh, for these ancient Mesoamerican and, and pre-Diluvian people around the world. Uh, and... You know, people like uh, Chris Dunn have written about the advanced uh, technology that's used in uh, Egypt in the cutting of of stone. He firmly believes that the the uh, Egyptians had some form of energy to to drive their devices, to drive their cutting tools, their sculpting tools, and their big saws. And I firmly believe that the Maya and other pre uh, uh, Mesoamerican people had similar technology. Uh, and when I look at this uh, Kalax Lawaka a temple, uh, I have to think that there's something going on here. You know, are, are they passing water through the mechanics to cool it down? Uh, does the water, and another possibility is, does the water, uh, which is a conductor, increase the energy distribution, power, uh, I don't know. We just don't know. Uh, again, Jim feels it's a observatory. I feel it's something else. I don't know what it could be, but it's the it's the most unusual building I've ever seen in Mexico. And he agrees. And he's been studying the the uh, architecture and the engineering of Mesoamerican people for fifty years, fifty years. And he's written extensively about it. So, anyhow, uh, take a look at this article. I'll post it uh, next week. And tell me what you think. Let me know what you think. And uh, and, and take a look at the, sh- at the small uh, piece that I put up uh, on the Facebook page that gives you an idea about this building and, and the um, not only its footprint, but also how water was circulated in, distributed, and then pumped out. Uh, and also uh, maybe perhaps what Jim O'Conn believes uh, it, you know it was some form of a um, uh, an observatory now I, I i i'm i'm resistant to that until we know more so anyhow fun research piece fun to to see this and uh, mesoamerica is always a, a, an interesting uh, study hey i want to mention if you want to uh, see a before and after i uh, uh, couldn't wait for my barber so I took my uh, beard uh, trimmer and I uh, basically just shaved my head. <laughs> Can't stand it. I'm going nuts. My hair's all over the place. So I uh, did a head shave. You can see the before and after on um, Facebook page. Remember, it's not like I shaved it bald, like I shaved it with a razor. I I used uh, a setting and then a, a comb that's like, I think it was number 16. So it's, you know, it's, it's uh, half an inch everywhere so but look at the before and after 
it's uh, the Cliff Dunning uh, pandemic uh, <laughs> look. So uh, I was going nuts. I was going batty. And um, uh, no one wants to cut my hair because it's a pandemic. So anyhow, take a look at that. Also, I uh, posted the uh, History Channel episode that I'm in. Uh, it's the uh, Crystal Skull it's on the Facebook page. Uh, it has all the details there. And uh, take a look at it. It's uh, it's being played now. It's in circulation. Crystal Skulls, the Maya, and a couple of other topics uh, on Unexplained with our great friend, William Shatner. Bill. Yeah, that's what he wants me to say. Bill. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy it. And a uh, little, little prelude. Don't know if I'll be back or not because uh, the, the entire production staff at uh, 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 Unexplained uh, was uh, put on uh, hold and uh, there's no more filming right now. So hopefully it won't spell the end of Unexplained because I'd love to be back. But uh, I don't know about the next season. Uh, could be interesting what happens. So stay tuned for that. Pandemic, everything's been sheltered. There's no conferences anymore. There are no uh, lecture series that you can go sit and and pay, uh, you know enjoy. But streaming media, live streaming media is out there, and I want to introduce you all to Earth Origins. It's a uh, streaming program that is Friday through Sunday. It's May fifteenth to the seventeenth. I have the producer Robert Dakota here with me. And Robert, this is pretty cool. You have a stellar lineup. Talk a little bit about this show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Cliff. Uh, with all the events being postponed for a year or more, I decided to be pretty stubborn about it. And since everybody is uh, almost in lockdown anyways, we decided to go ahead with and do the live stream so that we could have the event anyways. Super. Uh, yeah, that way people can tune in wherever they are. We don't give in and get pushed over, but we we still continue on. And I think it's going to be a really cool get-together. We've already been doing some Zoom interviews with current ticket holders, and everyone's having a good time. Okay. Let's talk about your lineup. Uh, your your marquee uh, presenter is Eric Van Donigan, uh, Chariots of the Gods, and he's written you know a number of books since then. But uh, He's your your number one uh, lineup. What day will he be uh, presenting his presentation? Yeah, that'll be on Saturday. So before we had evening presentations, and now we're just changing it Friday through Sunday, 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. They'll be giving some presentations, and then there'll be time for a Q&A. Fantastic. Okay, let's just go through the lineup. You got Randall Carlson, Freddie Silva, Hugh Newman, Jim Vieira, Michael Cremo. Now, Michael Cremo, I've had on a number of times. He's, what's he speaking on? I'm not sure what his topic's going to be. I know he's going to be focusing on the forbidden archaeology, but he's going to go into more of the Vedics and 
show how long history could really be because the Vedics are talking, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of years. Okay. Very cool. Um, also, what is the timeline? When, when is the start? When is the finish each day on this? Because you got multiple days. Is it the start in the morning and then you got a lunch break and then people come back and tune in? How, how does it work? Yeah, it's going to go from nine to five. And so the presentations uh, will be pre-recorded, but there'll be a chance to have a Q&A with the speakers. So the, the recordings will be able to check in up to six months after the event. But if you want to be there for the Q&A and connect with the speakers and ask them questions, it'll, it'll be on an hourly basis from nine to five. We'll have a break in between for lunch, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that will, will be recorded so everyone can check in and, and check it out later or review it again. It'll all be available for six months afterward. Okay, so the, the fee is for the live event, but if you can't make it, you can also uh, review it in a, uh, as a captured event and play it at your convenience is what you're suggesting. Yeah, that's right. And everybody who's bought a physical ticket or who will buy a physical ticket will get the uh, live stream included in their physical ticket for November as we had to postpone everything in, until November the 20th through the 22nd. Okay. How can people get more information? What's the uh, email address? Yeah, it's at worldviewsmedia.com. That's worldviews, W-O-R-L-D-V-I-E-W-Z instead of an S, media.com. Cool. All right. Yeah, Eric Van Donigan, Freddie Silva, even uh, greats like, uh, uh, you know, you got um, Gary A. David. Randall Carlson. Randall, and Freddie. Yeah, this is a good lineup. Really, really good lineup. Okay. Uh, check that out. I'm going to have the banner on my Facebook page with a link to where you get tickets. Streaming media is amazing, my friends, because you can be anywhere in your house, pump it up on the TV, have it on your laptop, and you can uh, connect with these people. Hey, much success with this, Robert, and uh, right we'll on. be in touch. Thank you very much, Cliff. Much success to you, too. Hang in there. Streaming media or streaming uh, presentations are a great way to see people live in the comfort of your home. This is a, a great lineup. Uh, Eric Van Donigan is a real fun presenter, and his slides are always are very fun to check out. So consider this. I hope you will check out the uh, website. Again, that's worldviews, with a Z, media.com. You can get your tickets. And uh, he is uh, offering the live event, and then you can get the copy of the event that you can uh, return to and view at your convenience. Worldviewsmedia.com. What a great lineup. Okay, so uh, today we have Adam Stokes has returned The topic is the Giants, who he believes uh, originated in uh, the Middle East and who migrated to Ohio. This is a a look from a biblical point of view. It was a good interview. He, Adam, is is quite brilliant when it comes to discerning and extracting data, not only from the Bible, but from other religious documents that really chronicle 
the migration of these great people to uh, the Americas, and which is which is uh, present day United States. And the topic, the the focus is on the giants, the mound builders of Ohio, the United States of America. So uh, I, I enjoy this interview. And I have a number of uh, images in a, a gallery that was placed on Earth Ancients Facebook page. You can see them there. And these average uh, people are, I think, the smallest individual that we see here. And these are skeletal remains of giants. The smallest individual is eight feet. The tallest is 13. So these are quite large, quite tall human beings, quite quite unusual. So here is today's program. Enjoy. Check in with Jin Deo. Jin scours the earth for articles and information that is fitting for you, the listener, uh, here on Earth Ancients. And uh, we're going to Southern California to a place called Calico in the Mojave Desert, which is uh, my state. Funny that I haven't been to the Mojave Desert, though. I've been here all my life, but I've never been to the Mojave Desert. Uh, and Jin, this is a, a site that has some evidence of very early people. What, what do we know about this area? Yeah, this is my old stomping ground. I lived in the Mojave Desert for a couple of years in uh, 18 to early 2000, lake bed where they found these tools, uh, Pleistocene Lake Mannix. And just so the listener knows, this area in general is, there's some really great quarries, um, really great stone material for making tools in general. So this mm-hmm. area was really dense with people moving through and collecting material to make stone tool implements. So this site was, there was a, along the Pleistocene lake bed, they found implements that looked like tools. These tools were dated at around 200,000 BP. What they believed to be true about these implements is that there was some contamination when they dated these. And this is thermonucleescence that they were doing. And they believe that the, there, there were elements in the soil that they believe contaminated the, what they believe. I wish I, you could see me, I'm doing air quotes, stone tool implements, <laughs> because they also <laughs> refer to them as geofacts. Okay. So what makes these interesting is that they were... The styles would suggest that these tools were somewhere around twenty to thirty thousand before present years old. Okay. So that's pretty old. So what scientists did is they started testing the site to see if there were any other cultural elements to the site. Were there any rock rings? Were there any other tools that maybe could be dated? based on style or, you know, that kind of thing. And essentially, they didn't find a lot. There were no butchering sites, just this stone assemblage, these lithics. So they decided that they needed to retest the dates of some of these tools. And also noteworthy, they brought in Louis Leakey. Louis Leakey, known for his work in northern Tanzania in the the Olduvai Gorge, 
with his find of um, preconsul Africansis, which is about 23 to 14 million years old, um, yeah. that early hominid. Right. So he's, he knows his stuff. He's been around. And he thought that these looked like tools that you would have found in Africa. Hmm. So there was kind of that a little bit of a disclaimer. This was at the end of his career. And uh, a lot of researchers and scientists felt like this was a pretty big stretch. So the site itself is, it's, it's huge. Lake Mannix was a huge Pleistocene lake. And to think that people were there probably after the lake dried up. Well, why would people have been there after the lake dried up? Was it replenishing itself and they were going back? There, there are all these questions that are still outstanding. When they did go back and do another rate, uh, thermonucleosense test of some of this debris, this they found out that these were dated at about 14,400 years to 2,000 years before present. So okay. there are some really differing stories here. I have seen this assemblage. And there are, I know for sure this biface that they date of the rock wren biface. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's, it, it's old. It's really old. You, so were you I, digging I, I've were actually you, looked at. Yeah. Were you digging in this area? Is this where one of, as a student or were you actually uh, digging for, for uh, these uh, implements? Your, uh, for well, I wasn't, ex, I wasn't excavating out there. I was the assistant post-archaeologist out at Fort Irwin. So, okay. So I was, I was monitoring and going through a number of these sites this calculate okay. was about three to four miles away from where I lived in Barstow, California. So this was a great hike. But what I will say, there's there's a lot going on here because there are cycles of erosion that happen. There are a number of weathering functions that take place. There's there's okay. stress that happens to stones out here because of the incredible heat that's going on. Mm-hmm. So I can see how some of this probably is geo. It's a geo fact. But I would also say that there are definitely tools that were mixed in with those geofacts because we're talking about really high quality stone to work with, really high quality chalcedony mm-hmm. um, and limestone outcrops. So I think that there's, I think 50-50 on this. I think that there is some pretty discernible antiquity to the site. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's 200 thousand years before present though i think it's probably right around that age of um 14,000 years ago to the calico site so one thing i want to ask you uh before we go is is this more like a uh, a workshop where they uh, were shipping away and making arrowheads and and cutting tools or was it a settlement Oh, this is a, that's a great question, Cliff. This is a, you would call this a workshop. This is where people were coming, um, gathering materials, stones that would be preferred when making tools. And Mm -hmm. like I said, this is really high quality chalcedony. Okay. It's also really beautiful. Yeah. Right. So we're going to put this on the Facebook page. Title is Mystery uh, of Calico Early Man Site in the Mojave Desert Ancient Overlooked Site in Northern or North America. It's very interesting. There's a lot of good photographs. Look for Earth Ancients uh, on the Facebook page, on their group. This also goes to earthancients.com under Facebook feed. Okay, Jen, a little insight on your own personal work and also uh, a place that is uh, quite interesting. I got to get down to the Mojave Desert. <laughs> I you got to. It's, a, it's like a, a great, great spot. Yeah. 
Okay. All right, Jen, fantastic. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. See you, Cliff. So we're introducing a new sponsor this week. It's a podcast on history. It's called History or His Story Podcast. Did you know that William Taft invented the treadmill or that Napoleon loved musicals or that Elvis wrote the Brady Bunch theme? Did you know that the previous three statements were all false? Regardless, we have your new favorite podcast. History or History is the new podcast from the Bramble Jam Podcast Network. It combines the love of history with the fun of a game show. It's history, camaraderie, and the idea of two truths and a lie all rolled into a podcast. The host is Dan, who is a former high school principal and a 15-year high school history teacher. He takes this background, does the research, and tells his two best friends three themed stories from United States history. One of the three stories is completely made up. His two buddies, along with the listening audience around the world, has to guess which story is his story. Whether it's the Wild West, the Roaring Twenties, sports, pop culture, or every major war, you'll laugh and you'll learn at the same time listening to history or his story. I had to listen to this podcast for a few minutes. Real fun, real entertaining and kind of a different idea. You can join in on the fun by listening and subscribing to History or His Story whenever you're listening to this podcast. Or head to historyorhisstory.com. That's history or H-I-S-S-T-O-R-Y.com. It's kind of cool. Check it out. The boys I've known and I've known some. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Coming to you live from around the world, it's Earth Ancient News. So we're heading to London, and our science editor, Bruce Fenton, uh, is uh, reporting on news around the world. He's got a uh, a new article that he just posted on the Facebook page. And I'll tell you, it makes you scratch your head because the article says uh, this. 50,000-year-old string used by Neanderthals found in, in France. And, and Bruce, this is kind of neat because it makes you think that maybe they were weaving. Maybe they were using cloth or, or, or uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's it really steps up the whole idea that Neanderthals were dragging their fists behind mm -hmm. them and they were pretty uh, uh unsophisticated absolutely yeah and the scientists are kind of admitting now that this is yet another reason to question the idea of some sort of cognitive inferiority with these neanderthal people um that instead over the last few months you know we've seen basically finds that they had artwork you know complex art going back over 50,000 years ago in i think it was in spain and then you've got recent evidence that they were fishing um, evidence that they were making glue out of, out of tree bark. You know, so all these things have been happening, right? And now we've yeah. got that they've got the oldest string in the world, you know, older than anything modern humans 
have you know provided evidence of at least we, we may well have had string at the time but mm-hmm. you know that hasn't been found but so right now this is actually the oldest signs of weaving and using cloth anywhere in the world uh, and it's coming from neanderthals not from modern humans so and what do they suspect the the string uh, could have been used for clothing or was it a bag or was it some kind of uh, uh, yeah. implement to hunt or fish or what Mm-hmm. Well, they've speculated a bit because it's, it's only a small, you know, obviously a small fragment, but because they found it attached to um, a small piece of stone. And just to clarify here, it's a, they say it's a, it's a free ply cord, and there's a, a fragment of it. It's about six millimeters of it that was unearthed at a site called Abri du Maras down in the southeast of France. So it's a very small piece, but because it's also seems to be attached to a, a little piece of stone. What they think that it was was a bag that was carrying a, a stone tool inside it, and that we've got a piece of the tool, a piece of the bag, you know, a little stone fragment and a little piece of the bag that's kind of, I guess, got caught somehow or, you know, has ended up together, the two pieces. So that's why they're tending towards thinking it was a bag, maybe even that the stone was part of a handle for the bag or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what they then go on to sort of say is that, you know, of course, is that if it, with the fact that they're weaving this thread at all, suggest that they would have been able to do a lot of other things whether this is a bag or not that they certainly would have been able to make bags and on top of that then you would have been able to make clothes you would have been able to make nets for fishing uh, and even make you know rope to tie around rafts you know to make boats and stuff <laughs> so it starts to really change that you know intellectual landscape for what they were capable of um, and that fits in with a lot of the other finds. As I say, we, we have had evidence that they were fishing and evidence that they reached islands in the Mediterranean. And so, so now we're starting to see the technological, you know, physical evidence that supports some of these other suspicions that, you know, have come out of, of recent research. So it's quite amazing because, you know, again, the fact is, well, it's before modern humans had it. You know, it may even be that that we got, you know, weaving in the idea from Neanderthals. You know, you start to start these questions that, you know, who came up with some of these first? And as you know, we've already had questions about that with the Denisovans, that the the pieces that were found in Siberia, you know, some of them were these drilled um, pieces of jewellery, you know, small stones with with rapid rate drills used on them to bore out the holes. And so that, that caused a stir because then it seemed like, well, maybe the Denisovans were ahead of us technologically. And now we have Neanderthals with the earliest string. So a lot of our superiority complex is getting really, you know, hammered here. Yeah. I want to ask you, and this is, uh, I think we brought this up before, though. If this is dated to 50,000 years ago, and we're also talking about here on Earth Ancients, a sophisticated uh, Atlantinian culture, perhaps uh, in Mexico and China, why are these guys uh, shown, you know, as as another form of, of hominin and not part of this advanced race is it's like we have a disconnect we have mm-hmm. you know we're thinking we, we have atlantis we have uh, a very uh, sophisticated sea faring cultures that are crossing the atlantic and the pacific and then we have the neanderthals is it like there's a subgroup that's just in the backwoods like uh, the aborigines in the, <laughs> the forest or what what do you well, say people, about some, that well some people do choose not to use um, you know, technologies, even today, obviously, you know, you can have an access to a technology and not use it. And like one of the things, again, there in, in Australia, that because of cultural positions, a lot of Aboriginal nations 
um, didn't actually believe it was right to do, you know, large-scale sort of mining of uh, metals and smelting. And stuff. So it wasn't so much that people couldn't do it, but then they made cultural choices so that it wasn't appropriate, right? Yeah. Um, so then, you know, we, but the capabilities in humans have always been, you know, been there. You've got the same brain, got the same hands, you know, obviously got the same inquiring minds. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's possible to make the decision to be, say, like a jungle tribe now that knows that there's a technological world out there, yeah. but decides, you know, we don't like it. We're just going to stay in our tribal village and do things our way. So obviously that happens too. Um, so yeah. it's not always about that people couldn't do something, but they may choose not to. Um, we have to consider as well here that, if they did, like, so example, these Neanderthals, if they were making boats and they're using this rope for that, that yeah. 50,000 years ago, that's a lot of time to have developed some pretty good boats and ships long oh, yeah. before our modern age, right? Because if, let's say they're making, uh, they're making boats 50,000 years ago, right, with ropes. How long before you get to a decent ship, right, that can sail across the oceans? So, again, exactly. that is said earlier about these lost civilizations, that we now have evidence that is really pointing to an ability to create ocean-going vessels yeah. tens of thousands of years ago, which is which totally undermines a lot of the limitations that have been put on by the academics in, you know, in the mainstream before the week, you know, this was impossible. Now we see the evidence is growing and growing that there was plenty of time to develop a maritime culture that's been lost during the Younger Dryas and that, you know, that technology was there to have developed boats and ships. Yeah, it's, it's like almost like we may have the whole story of the Neanderthals and these early hominins wrong. You know, yeah. they were much more uh, sophisticated in many, mm-hmm. many ways yep. than, than we uh, than we uh, give them credit for. So absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Okay, we're gonna put this on Facebook for you guys to read. We'll have some uh, photographs. Facebook Earth Ancients uh, under group. It automatically goes to earthancients.com under Facebook feed and uh, you can see the evidence of this uh, string and it's a it's an eye opener in many ways it kind of mm-hmm. changes the the narrative so all right Bruce fantastic and we will talk to you next week thanks very much take care as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I think it's time that we hear about some giants. We haven't talked about giants for almost, God, at least a year. And uh, if you've been a regular listener to uh, Earth Ancients, you know that we've had the who's who of giant authors, uh, Richard Dewhurst, uh, Jim Vieira, and so on. And we have a returning author with us, uh, Adam Stokes. And uh, Adam is a biblical scholar I should call it, he's a religious scholar. Uh, he received his uh, master's in divinity from Yale. And I had Adam on the program because he was editing for uh, Ancient American Magazine and also was a, a regular contributor. And his thinking was outside of the box, which is important to be a contributor on uh, Earth Ancients in that he had found evidence of earlier people, the mound builders, and uh, we're having him back because he's written a new book called From Egypt to Ohio, The Semantic Origin for the Giants of North America. And uh, I thought it was time that we touch on giants again because there's always room for more information. So, hey, Adam, welcome back to Earth Ancients. How you doing, man? Great to be back. I'm doing good, Cliff. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Okay, cool. Okay, I got to ask everybody. You're, I'm here in San Francisco. You're, uh, where are you again? I'm sorry. Where, what part of the I'm East Coast? South Jersey. Right South over Jersey. The border from uh, Philadelphia. Okay, yeah. so give us, give it to us in uh, ten seconds or less. Uh, what's happening with you and your kids? Uh, are you in lockdown? Are you becoming a homeschool educator? What's happening? Well, basically, it's like uh, kind of like Mad Max Thunderdome around here. Actually, not that bad. But everything, Cliff, is completely shut down except for the food stores. So if you want to go anywhere to socialize, which you shouldn't be doing, you have to go to Walmart. That's like literally, Cliff, Cliff I swear, uh, the only thing that's open right now. Um, really? I'm home. They shut down my school. Let me see. The very beginning of March. Uh, yeah, March 9th, we were, they shut us down from going on to campus. So mm-hmm. I have been since then teaching. Uh, my students online, and uh, they've actually been really, they've uh, really adjusted to it. They've uh, been really great uh, with, you know, dealing with this whole thing, which none of us have ever experienced before. Um, so I teach my college class in the evenings online using Zoom, and I teach my uh, 
high school class uh, in the mornings from uh, nine thirty to ten. How are they Both working of our it out? Kids are home. Okay, so uh, so how are they yeah. doing it at your college? Is it you normally would see your students face to face? Are they? Are they? Are you now required to yep. send your syllabus because you're already into the year when this started, right? You were already into the into the semester, yep. right? Yep. We only had like, yeah. I only my, my last class, in fact, Cliff is next week uh, for the oh. entire semester. So okay. So how is that? To, how is that transition from face to face to uh, a Zoom? Is, are your kids? Uh, are your students complaining, or are they saying I can work with this? Because they don't have a choice. Not really. They, <laughs> they don't have a choice if they want to graduate. So, yeah, they don't have a choice. So, okay. Um, they better be on there. They, they've actually been better than me, Cliff. So with everything that's been going on, sometimes the days kind of blur for me. I don't even know when, you know, like it's Friday or when it's Monday. Yeah. Uh, today is Thursday, right? So Yeah, um, I hear you. You, you, <laughs> you got to get out of bed. Thank God for uh, the alarm or I probably sleep all day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, 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 what's the course you're teaching? I'm sorry. What is? What are you teaching? It's an intro Old Testament course um, at St. Joe's. I've taught it for about ten years now. Okay. Uh, wonderful students. She's like the nicest, the sweetest of students, and yeah, they've adjusted really, really well to it. I will uh, talk okay. and blabber on with them for like three hours over Zoom, and uh, they will listen. They will take notes, and it's actually gone much smoother than I thought when the university okay. first informed. Uh, me about this, uh, informed us all about this. I was like, oh, crap. But it worked out really well. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the administration, my dean and the theology department's excellent. But okay. I would say 80% was was the kids. The, the students are, are, are just really, really wonderful. Let me ask you, I, I got to ask you this, because Zoom is a new technology. And for those of you listening who do not use Zoom, uh, when you use, when you have the video portion, and you can set it for video or just pure audio, but uh, most people like the video portion because you can see who you're talking to. Do you have the hundred students with their little boxes around your? Yeah, dude, it's crazy. So, um, how's it, it goes? So I have 33 students and I think it only goes up to 30 or so, but if they're all there, the boxes will be all around the screen. Okay. Uh, but it's cool <laughs> because I can put like my own uh, background, my own wallpaper. So I've had like, the Jerusalem temple from ancient times back there. Oh. I've had the um, planet Coruscant from Star Wars behind me. Mm-hmm. I've had um, a pyramid behind me. And I can link between Zoom and my PowerPoint presentation. So um, okay, it's actually so it's working out. Well. It's working out. Yeah. And what, let me just ask you that one last question. What are they telling you is going to be the, um, the date to resume normal class uh, attendance? That's it. Um, so my the college I teach at, there's not going to be any uh, campus attendance, even into summer classes. So I'm teaching a summer course, and it's just going to still be online, still Zoom. So they're same preparing as, the same as everything else. Okay. So yeah, and I don't know Zoom. what they're going to do for the fall, but wow. I know at least for the summer, and probably Cliff, if I was a betting man, I would say yes for uh, the fall. Uh, they're still going to be doing online classes. My high school resumes around May the fifteenth, but I don't. That's the that's the official date, but honestly, Cliff, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. So, so like you as an academic, uh, as a teacher, as a professor, uh, uh, it, it doesn't look like even after the summer that they will resume normally in the fall. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think wow. so. I really don't. So that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
Okay. And I feel sad for like the senior students, especially because all that stuff that we had when we were kids, you know, the the prom and senior parties and senior yeah. prank and all that stuff, they don't get to experience. So I, yeah. I feel really bad about that. I, I, I mean, these. I was just reading the other day. These uh, students are that want to graduate. There's no graduation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's a graduation. You graduate, but there's no ceremony. No, no, it's all it's online. Yeah, yeah. Really sad. It's crazy. So anyhow, yeah. hey, well, thanks for for uh, for keeping up and uh, doing your thing as a, as an educator. It's really important. Hey, let's talk about this book uh, from Egypt to Ohio. We've had John before talking about the giants. Why biblical giants? What was that? I mean, obviously, you're a biblical scholar. You must have been reading or thinking and all of a sudden you're like wait a minute we're not covering the biblical giants what what was the what was the basis is that it basically the the wanting to know more from a uh, old testament side or what yeah there are a couple things so um i think that kind of like what you said Biblical giants are often ignored. We talk about a lot of different things uh, in the Bible, you know, whether this person or that person's historical, whether uh, certain beings are extraterrestrial or not. But Mm -hmm. the idea, the concept of giants in the Bible is really kind of pushed aside. You only hear about David and Goliath, and you don't hear about all of the other giants, which there are a plethora of in the Old Testament uh, corpus. So I wanted to kind of write this book to highlight how many times giants are mentioned and just uh, to show that the Bible itself is kind of uh, can be a great guide to, you know, uh, ancient accounts of giants, one of many um, ancient accounts uh, throughout the world and different cultures. I think my second impetus for it was um, that I saw a clear cut connection in the ancient cultures of America, specifically in the Midwest. I saw a clear cut cultural connection between the biblical giants in the Old Testament and uh, the giants that are uh, that uh, have been found in the Midwest. You know, as a biblical scholar, I'm really fascinated uh, on your take of uh, of giants and. It's funny because you basically focus on the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is truly a document that you have, uh, you've been able to extract information on a pre-Diluvian people, right? Yes. Pre pre uh, pre flood. Um, does the does the Old Testament give us a, a hint at the size of these uh, these giants? Uh, that's a that's a good question, Cliff. So. In it depends on where you look in the Old Testament. So if you look at later Old Testament texts, say like the Deuteronomic history, it will actually give the size of uh, the giants. So it'll say three to four cubits, which is pretty damn big. Uh, that's about uh, between six and twelve feet. Um, so we do get specific sizes uh, when it talk when we uh, look at the text talking about uh, Israel's later history when they're in. Uh, the promised land, and then uh, during the time of the early monarchy. So we uh, do get some of that. But for the pre-Diluvian giants, uh, which are really talked about uh, just in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we don't have anything in the Bible that actually tells us how big they were. But there is a clue um, towards uh, the end of uh, Genesis chapter 6 when it's talking about the giants. And they say that these were the mighty heroes of old, 
uh, Anshe Shem, men of the name. Excuse me for um, a minute. Are you saying chapter six of the of Genesis? Of Genesis, yes. Of Genesis. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So uh, Genesis chapter six is the beginning of um, the Noah flood story. And it talks about basically the reason why God gets pissed off and distraught and wants to destroy humanity. It's because of these giants. And their specific size isn't given, but um, we do we do have this phrase that they are men of uh, the name, Anshe uh, Shem. And later interpreters such as Josephus pick up on this and say that uh, these, these men of name, these men of repute, these famous men, he links them directly to the heroes of Greek mythology. Um, so Achilles, Heracles, Perseus, Thespesius, etc. And we know uh, from the Greek tradition that uh, Hercules, or Heracles as they call him, um, was uh, seen as an extremely tall uh, person. Um, so um, the, the statues of Hercules, they always have him at least being like eight or nine feet high. Um, so if Josephus is... Uh, if Josephus and early interpreters are kind of reading the text that way, uh, then um, I would say that we're dealing with with persons about, you know, not attempting to hide. Wow. So one of the questions I have for you is, what do we know about the background uh, based on the information that we get uh, on these giants from the Old Testament? Uh, you identify them as uh, Israelite. and do we have a background of knowledge that is outside of the Old Testament on where these people came from, uh, their ancestry at all? Yeah, that um, yeah, that's a very important question. So I talk about in my book that there is kind of a merger um, throughout Israelite history between this race of giants and the Israelite people uh, themselves. Um, now, the race of giants themselves, uh, people have speculated. They've said, um, so like, for example, Josephus says that these are the pre-churches of the Greek heroes. Um, other people say uh, that they come from like a lost Atlantean civilization. But it's interesting because whatever uh, the civilization was, according to the biblical flood account, it should have died off completely. But yeah. these giants uh, continue to reappear. So. Uh, during the time of Moses, um, in the account that's given in, in the Pentateuch or Torah, they say, um, look, we see the children of the Nephilim and the Anakim here. Now, the Nephilim should have all died out during the flood. They're still around. Yeah. Um, so somehow they survived, and they're in the promised land, and the Israelites are trying to drive them out of the promised land. And um, unspeakable to many people, um, the Israelites actually don't succeed in driving out all of the people out of the promised land. So they're forced to basically dwell with them in the land of Canaan and intermarry with them. And time and time again, we kind of see this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This kind of hybridization, this kind of interbreeding between giants and Israel all throughout uh, their history. And so I think that what you have, what emerges is that you have these giants with their ancient knowledge bringing uh, their understanding, their expertise, um, and merging that with Israelite culture. So the giants have knowledge of pyramids, similar uh, to what the Egyptians have. And 
they're merging with the Israelites. So you get kind of a Israelite Egyptian type of culture uh, that uh, emerges in the Near East and then eventually uh, will transfer to the New World, to America. You know, it's funny. You're a, a progressive historian because you follow uh, a lot of people that we have on the program here. Would you say, and it seems like it's an obvious uh, <laughs> conclusion, that the Bible basically starts uh, just before the asteroid hit that created the Great Flood. Because yes, if Genesis is the beginning of the, of the Old Testament, Genesis is, is, is talking about uh, just before the flood and then the flood and then the rest of the Bible is all the various characters. Yeah. So, I mean, does that make sense to you that the, the Bible basically starts uh, at, at just before the reboot following the, 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 the damage that the flood makes about 12,500 years ago? Yeah, it's interesting because there seems to be, that's a really good observation because there seems to be basically thousands of years of history, perhaps even millions of years of history, if you, um, however you want to read the Bible, kind of condensed between Genesis chapters one and Genesis chapter six. Right. So you have the creation of Adam and Eve, um, however you want to interpret that, uh, allegorical or, uh, bring in Stitchin and Von Donikin. Is this yeah. some type of experiment that someone else is doing? Uh, then you have a bunch of names similar to kind of the Egyptian kings list and the Sumerian kings list that even Stitchin talked about, where you have these rulers living for uh, hundreds, uh, hundreds of years. And so there's just a genealogy of them. And then you get the flood stories. So there is, like you said, Cliff, thousands of years of history that are absent. And then it just starts off right after a flood around like, you know, 2000, uh, 2000 BCE. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the Bible's not made. I mean, it, it is a historical document for a lot of people. But if we really want to drill down, you know, uh, and, I, and this is what I want to bring up next. You just brought up Sitchin. You have an alternative definition of the Nephilim in that, and I'm with you on that, you don't believe that they came necessarily from another world. They were already here on Earth as yes. terrestrial beings. And so, their association with the Anunnaki is is what now they they uh, 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 were the offspring uh, of the Anunnaki taking on Earth women and and, and uh, mating right. So talk a little bit about how you define the Nephilim according to your interpretation. Yeah, so I kind of take a non uh, extraterrestrial um, approach uh, to them. Um, and uh, the reason I do this is because I think that, you know, the giants, as amazing as they were, uh, we kind of, I think, just this is my own personal opinion, as much as I love uh, Stitching, as much as I love Von Daniken, we don't do the human race or basically, yeah, the human species enough credit. Um, I think that they were just, you know, extraordinarily tall human beings who um, had a, a vast, highly advanced civilization before the time of the flood. And I don't think that they're unique in that regard. I mean, I know you talk about the Aztecs and the Mayans all the time, and I think that, you know, they had a very, very advanced civilization. I'm right there with you in the camp that, you know, the Mayans might have possibly gone to the moon and Mars and other places. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of damn good evidence for that. Um, 
And so if that's the case, they were even more advanced than us. Um, but they were human nonetheless. So I wanted to, you know, I didn't think that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was uh, necessary, especially given the ways that you can interpret the biblical text. This goes into different interpretations, different translations of uh, the biblical text. So the term Nephilim, um, it means literally it's from the verb nephal, meaning fallen ones. Um, and so Stitchin took this as, you know, alien beings falling from space. But the, the way the term is used a lot in the Old Testament is to refer to uh, someone or a civilization or a culture that has fallen from its former glory. The best evidence for this, the most notable example of this is one of my other favorite Old Testament books, the Book of Lamentations where uh, you have uh, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and Jerusalem is personified as a uh, woman. And this woman talks about how she has fallen. Same exact verb, verb used in Genesis 6, the fall. So how mighty Zion has fallen. So I take the reference to the fallen ones there being uh, this fallen civilization. Why did they fall? Well, they were a bunch of, they were a bunch of a-holes. They were violent. They were cruel. They were taking these, these uh Basically, these normal-sized women by force, exerting, you know, their 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 strength and their power over people forcefully, and um, uh, they got sick of this. And whoever uh, Elohim or Yahweh is in the story, if you want to call him um, an extraterrestrial, or if you want to take a supernatural theological view of it and talk about God, that God got sick of it too. Okay, well, this is what I want to bring up is that uh, in your research, you discover that uh, these uh, Nephilim were raping uh, uh, women, uh, yes. and, and it was upsetting the, the divine force or some form of civilization that had the ability to change the environment, to create a massive flood. Mm-hmm. Who were the who were the the Yowie? Who were, I mean, uh, who who were these individuals that caused this worldwide flood? Awesome question. I, I could talk about this all day, but I'll try and give you the condensed answer. Um, can you hear me? Now I can. Okay, I couldn't hear you. Okay. Maybe okay. you have to okay. hold the mic or something. There you go. I'll hold it closer to me. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a great. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I could talk about that for for hours. I will uh, try to condense it here. Um, I think that when we talk about Near Eastern gods. I think that, and this is where I am going to agree with Von Daniken and Stitchin, that we are talking about extraterrestrial beings. Now, I say that as a person of faith, um, because my own tradition, where I come from, uh, the latter, uh, the latter day saints, we have in our scriptures that God actually comes from a particular planet, the planet Kolob, um, out in, um, and Mormon astro- uh, astronomers have actually pinpointed this, lo- this location. So, that's not a con- I say that cliff to say that's not a contradiction to my own faith. Uh, sometimes when people mention extraterrestrials, uh, religious people, fundamentalists clutch their pearls and say, you know, oh, uh, this is blasphemy. But uh, for myself, uh, that idea is congruent with what we get um, with uh, religion. I don't think there's I don't think there's a contradiction between the two. Now, with Yahweh in particular, um, there's uh, something very interesting about. Uh, his name uh, in uh, not the Greek, but the Latin translation. The Latin translation for Yahweh, Adonai Zevaot in the Hebrew, is Dominus Exercitum, which merely means um, 
if you ever took Latin in uh, high school or something, literally means commander of the armies. Um, so it's a military designation, basically meaning the general or the commander of the armies. And uh, when Joshua has uh, what we call in biblical scholarship a theophany, an encounter with God in Joshua chapter five, I believe, um, he says, uh, dude, who are you? And the guy says, I am the commander of uh, the armies. Um, so I think we're looking, when we talk about who caused the flood, I think we're talking about extraterrestrial beings who didn't like basically what was going on down on Earth. And with their uh, advanced technology, their advanced skills, basically wiped off the bad inhabitants of the Earth. And this was uh, so, and their presence was so kind of enforced that this becomes a race memory in all of the cultures around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, the Greek story, Deucalion, same thing. Humans were a bunch of jerks, so the gods destroyed them. Um, Epic of Gilgamesh, same exact thing. So this is this is all over. But I think the source of the flood is extraterrestrials, but the giants themselves were uh, creations, just like human were just another uh, species of human okay. being, as as Andrew Collins would say. So let's speculate. I want you to speculate as a as sure. a uh, religious authority on this Hancock and Bavall and Shock and a number of other uh, people who have researched this phenomenon of the the flood believe it was an asteroid, but it could have been a, a directed asteroid. In other words, uh, 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 an advanced race could take and, and, and direct it to to Earth. Do you think it was an asteroid or do you think it was perhaps some form of, uh, of missile or military grade uh, weapon that, that caused the, the flood? I think it was all of those clips. I think the asteroid was the missile that the uh, higher intelligences, the extraterrestrials aimed at the earth to cause, to cause uh, the flood. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of giggling a little bit because I, just recently have begun to uh, accept more and more otherworldly influencing uh, influences on earth uh, in the form of uh, uh, panspermia, which is intelligent seeding. I was just about to say that. So yeah, the, um, yeah, the uh, person who it wasn't uh, Francis Crick who discovered. Yeah. Chandra Wick Ramsey is his associate. Chandra Wick Ramsey. Yeah. I should have. I've had him on the show a couple of times. Yeah, well, he said that, you know, there is no way that the human DNA could have come about by chance. It was carried deliberately on this asteroid, just like you're saying, with panspermia. So we have other examples, I think, a very well-attested example of what you said, the panspermia, of directed asteroids coming this way to Earth and influencing humanity. Yeah, hands down. Okay, okay. okay so I want to start – I'm getting the basics from you on these giants – they're based in the Middle East. We have some information on their their background. Not, it's still kind of fuzzy. It's hard to say if they were part of it. I mean, there's some people who believe that Atlantinians were giants. You know? Yes. There's and some- I think we're. I would. I would put Ant- At- Atlantean in quotes because I do think the giants have their source in this society so ancient that it can't actually be. It can't actually be named. I think that Plato is drawing on whatever the heck that society is. Plato's drawing on it, and he labels it specifically um, Atlantis. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting clues. What I what I want to get from you now is, and I get a little bit from the book, and your focus for those of you listening, uh, Adam's uh, book focuses on uh, Ohio, the Mound Builders of Ohio, uh, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But what what influences them to cross the Atlantic and to begin settling in the New World or or present day United States? Good question. So I think that the impetus for, and this gets kind of to the last chapter of my book, which I know is really kind of controversial, but I think the impetus for it, so you have this giant Israelite hybrid race that, you know, comes together and basically kind of develops throughout the course of Israel's history. And then all of a sudden in 586 BCE, this is always a uh, date that I have my students memorize for either their midterm or the final exam, my Old Testament students. Um, in 586 BCE, there's a destruction of the temple. And so um, not just the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, but the Babylonians just straight up either start deporting um, the Israelites or just start uh, hacking them up, just start killing them. So they have to flee. And I think groups of these Egypto-Israelite uh, giants uh, fled during that time. And that was the impetus. The destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem was the impetus uh, for them uh, to cross over. Now, were there So let me just crossings? stop you right there. Yeah. 500, 583 BC, right? Yes, yes. And and there's documents of this Babylonian invasion in where? Israel? In Israel, yes. In uh, okay. the southern kingdom, in uh, Judah, yes. Okay. And this is, this is, uh, because uh, I'm not a f- uh, a familiar with the Bible in that sense. So they are warring. The Babylonians are warring. They're coming in and basically saying, uh, they're, are they physically driving them out, saying this is not your land anymore? Or how are they pushing them out? Yeah, well, uh, long story short, uh, the Israelites, uh, they're a small nation. You have what at that time in, five, in the 6th century is the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. They're a small nation. And they don't pay their taxes. And they kind of rise up, kind of like our founding fathers did, and say, screw you, Babylonians. We're not going to pay the taxes to you anymore. We're not going to give you tribute anymore. And it doesn't work out in the same way it did for the American founding fathers. We won, and now we have the United States of America. They lost big time. So the Babylonians come in and just basically uh, burn down their temple, destroy Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and who they don't lead into captivity – uh, basically lead the women and children into captivity and basically kill everybody else. So if you're a grown man, just like you and me, we'll be dead. So you got to, you got to get out. You got to leave the Babylonians. You got to go, you got to flee from that place or else you're dead. Okay. So good. Yeah. So, so are, are you saying the migration uh, to uh, America was what happened around 500 BC? Yes, I'm going to. I'm saying that the uh, main migration happened around that time, but I think that there were earlier migrations. So there's a guy uh, named uh, Ethan Smith who wrote a book called "The View of the Hebrews" back in the 16th or 17th century, who argued for migration uh, during the time of the Assyrian Empire. They were the big bad empire before the Babylonians came on the scene, and that would have been about 200, 300 years before. Uh, that time. Um, I think you also have evidence of, you know, smaller migrations before then. So I think migrations are happening before and after that time, but the, there's a big migration that takes place 
with that fundamental event in Israelite history with the destruction of the temple in 586 BCE. Okay. But I think the different migrations kind of explain why you have uh, Hebrew Semitic culture throughout North America. So you have the Los Luna Stone in New Mexico, but you also, going back to what you said earlier, have uh, Semitic inscriptions, Semitic tablets in uh, Ohio as well. Um, you know, on the other side, on, on uh, two different parts of the United States, two, two different parts of the American continent. Okay. So let's get into the America. Uh, you, you target the Hope, uh, the Hopewell and the Adena people of Ohio region as the perhaps descendants of these early migrations. And yes. what, what, um, I guess the question I have is that uh, we see evidence of these giants, uh, their bones in uh, some of the mounds and, and, and graves and things like that. But where did the technology to build these mounds come from? Did they, did they work with uh, an earlier culture in building mounds? Because a lot of these mounds are aligned with the constellations. They're used for yeah. sundials and so forth. What, what, where's, the, where's the brain trust in his? Yeah, so um, a couple of things I think are going on here. And this is something that Dr. Greg Little points out. I know you had him on the show um, a couple of months back. Uh, in his book with Collins, The Mist of an Origin, he notes that you can't group all mounds into um, a single uh, type, which I have been guilty of doing uh, mm-hmm. in the past. So he says that there are some mounds that are straight up, like he said, astrologically oriented and stuff. And then there are some mounds that came afterwards that were built by a later civilization that didn't know the earlier civilization, but they saw these mounds and thought, hey, these are cool, and they wanted to imitate them. Um, So uh, there are some mounds that are astronomically aligned, and then some mounds which seem to have been made by uh, later groups of people who didn't know who these giants were. Um, I, I think that they get this technology because of Israel's integration with uh, Egypt, which I talk a little bit about in my book. So you have kind of two uh, hybridizations, two integrations going on. The first is between these giants and Israel. And then throughout its history, we're so used, this is something that um, I highlight in my book, but we're used to seeing the Israelites and the Egyptians as arch enemies. So you look at the Ten Commandments, the Egyptians are the bad guys, the Israelites are the good guys. But Israel integrates and assimilates with Israel, um, excuse me, um, yeah, Israel integrates with Egypt and assimilates with Egypt all throughout its history. And in fact, um, going back to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, one of the reasons that uh, the Israelites don't pay their taxes is because they think that they have Egypt as their ally. Egypt is kind of like oh, our yeah. French in the American Revolution. Yeah. and they're like, if we don't pay our taxes, Egypt uh, will support us against the Babylonians. The Egyptians chicken out and say, hell no, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're, not, we're not dealing with them. Um, but I <laughs> highlight, that, highlight that to show that Israel and Egypt actually have a close, positive relationship. And they are exchanging culture. And so the Israelites, um, these, um, e- these giants, are getting their idea for how to build these mounds which are very similar to the Egyptian pyramids from their interaction with the Egyptians. So you have these uh, giant Israelite hybrids. They're interacting with Egypt. Egyptians are intermarrying with them. We even have this uh, with King Solomon. He marries an Egyptian woman. So they're interacting and they're getting this technology 
um, to build these uh, mounds, these pyramid-like structures uh, from that uh, interaction uh, with with uh, Egypt. And so um, a lot of these mounds, not all of them, but there are some mounds, uh, for example, Monk's Mound, uh, which has the same exact dimensions, 13.5 uh, acres, as the Giza Pyramid, uh-huh. uh, which for me, and I've mentioned this before, is straight up evidence. I think that's the, that's the smoking gun of diffusionism there. So that's, you bring up a really good point. Uh, if they were bringing over uh, Egyptian science and technology, that sure. would be the foundation for how they built their mound communities, their civic centers. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, align them to the constellation. So yes, exactly. That that's a good filler right there. That's a, an important point that you make there because look, other than Greg Little, everyone thinks the mounds are just piles of heaps of dirt yeah. that are yeah. ceremonial centers. You know, I mean, the the, the yeah. automatic default for anthropologists is that, that they're shaman mounds. You know, yeah, or or they're ceremonial mounds of some type that we can't. Uh, that we can't explicitly identify. So nobody wants to identify uh, who built these mounds or what their exact purpose was for. And that was part of the impetus for my book as well, because I think that when you look at the evidence, if you get out of the box that uh, traditional or official uh, anthropology and archaeology has basically put itself in, there is a very clear understanding of who uh, built these mounds and why. Mm-hmm. Do we have any dates for, uh, I mean, let me ask you, uh, what's the earliest mound uh, in uh, Ohio dated that? Do we know? I believe um, in the region, I think Monk's Mound uh, is the oldest. I'm blank. I'm trying to. It's not 500 BC. It's more like 200 BC or earlier or later, excuse me. Yeah, there's one that's later. So. The Serpent Mound uh, is much later. Um, and then we have another one. I'm going to say Monk's Mound, but that doesn't seem right. I think it's another mound um, that dates to as early as 3000 BCE and as late as 1700 BCE. 3000? Um, that's way, that's, that's, well, that's yes. 3000. That's pretty old. So, so can I you think the it, da- later date for that? I would say around 1700, uh, 1500 BC. Okay. So can you explain that, that number? If those are the, uh, the giants coming over earlier, perhaps somebody knew about new America or the new world before the problem with the Babylonians, they were coming yes. over here pretty early. Yes. Yes. I think, and Barry fell, uh, talks about this in his book, America BC. I think that uh, way before uh, the Babylonians, uh, people knew um, not just Israelites, but uh, various cultures, um, Polynesian cultures, the Phoenicians, for example, uh, were coming over here and knew of the, of the, of the new world uh, way, way before, uh, yeah, way before that stuff happens with the Babylonians. Okay. Yes. Now I want to connect the dots real briefly here because we're going to uh, ask some other questions about the mounds. But you show in your book that the, uh, the foundation for your thesis that the Israelites were these giants is these, um, uh, the, the symbology that's found in the, in the burials. Talk a little bit about the carvings and the, and the symbols 
and the writing that relates to, to Israel. Yes, yes. I actually remembered uh, the mound that is that dates to before the Common Era. It's Poverty Point. So Monk's Mound is, uh, like you said, late in the Common Era, but Poverty Point is the one that dates uh, to around uh, 1700 uh, BCE. Okay, that's pretty um, old. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so um, one of basically my favorite spots in uh, looking at uh, giants in North America is uh, the Newark Earthworks in Ohio. Um, I've mentioned this before um, in other places, but this is just a treasure trove of Native American uh, culture and uh, items. So uh, this was uncovered in uh, the 19th century, and then there was an official uh, kind of excavation done during the Roosevelt eras with uh, the WPA, and they just found a ton of just different uh, Native American uh, artifacts. And within those artifacts were several different uh, inscriptions. So the Newark Holiness Stones, the Bat Creek Stone, uh, etc. And uh, these inscriptions uh, were in uh, Paleo-Hebrew, Proto-Semitic, um, and they were clearly, uh, they were inscriptions uh, taken from uh, statements in the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. Now, this is a significant cliff because our oldest freaking text of Hebrew that we have anywhere is a um, is a rendering of the priestly blessing from the book of Numbers, which goes back, um, and that's about, I think, the 6th century BCE. That is like super old, considering that um, our earliest manuscripts of the Bible after that are around the 1st century BCE, 1st century CE, and then the Masoretic Codex way, way, way after that in the Middle Ages in the 10th century. But the very earliest text that we have in Hebrew, uh, which gives a biblical quote, is of the blessing from the book of Numbers, which is in the Pentateuch. Uh, so this suggests whenever you see these um, these inscriptions with these biblical quotes from the Pentateuch, that itself suggests outside of the Paleo-Semitic, which uh, they wouldn't have used um, until way after 586 uh, BCE and only because of Persian influence, that suggests that these uh, inscriptions are very old. And traditional scholarship, uh, Frank Cross um, and uh, other scholars have uh, tried to basically disprove these uh, artifacts. Um, but the only, basically, Cliff, it comes down to the only reason that they want to disprove them is that the influence of diffusionism and Semitic culture. They were found in uh, the same region, uh, the same uh, layer of, of of the dig as the other objects. So there's absolutely no reason uh, for you to dismiss them as hoaxes, other than that they don't fit into the model of diffusionism. Yeah, and this is something that's a, a theme here constantly, and it's in a theme in a number of authors uh, uh, that we promote here is the uh, cross-Atlantic uh, migration, cross-Pacific migration of different peoples, into the Americas, not necessarily the Americans. It can be anywhere. Uh, and the orthodoxy, just not having the ability to accept it. Uh, we keep going to the land bridge at the Bering Strait uh, from Asia down as the only way of migrating. It just doesn't work anymore, does it? No, no. And I, I don't want to completely discount Clovis, but I think Clovis, like uh, Apollo Crete when he fought Draco, has had you know, has been jabbed at pretty much. So um, I think there's a way to kind of uphold Clovis 
but not deny that you have migrations from all these other different groups of people into North America. So they all mm-hmm. didn't, just as you said, Cliff, they all didn't just come from the Bering Strait um, from uh, through Alaska and into the New World. They came from many other places as well. There were many other different groups of people. Um, there is a book, uh, Ancient Native America by Jennings. And in the appendix of his book, um, this is a mainstream scholar, but um, he gives some great evidence for diffusionism uh, in his book, Phoenician diffusionism and Egyptian diffusionism, and with the Olmecs and kind of the Negroid faces on them, possible possible African diffusionism. Um, and you can tell that he was so ups- he was so worried about what mainstream archaeology would think of of his examples that he puts this in the index. You won't even find it unless you look at the index um, of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but clear cut, very uh, from a mainstream scholar, from a mainstream academic. Uh, very clear-cut examples of diffusionism in North, mainly in North America, but also South America as well with the Olmecs. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question that you may not be able to answer, but I think you can at least give us a hypothesis. If human beings uh, ranging between 7 and 13 feet uh, once walked the earth, uh, migrated from Middle East to the Americas, and and from another other from a number of other authors, we know that uh, giants are all over the world. Where are they? Is it that possibility? I mean, one of my theories is that this asteroid hit may have pushed us off of uh, our normal uh, sun orbit, changed the gravity, changed the environment, and they and the and our planet just could not uh, support a very big person like that anymore. But then again, we have basketball players that are, are exceedingly tall, yeah. six yeah. foot ten, seven foot tall, yeah. and they don't seem to have any problems. So, what? What's? Where are these giants? What? Where do they go? That that's a great question. I think there's a couple of ways to answer that question. Uh, first off, I would you could say you could argue that they went nowhere uh, because their bloodline is still within certain races of people. So you mentioned uh, kind of your basketball player. Yeah. Uh, but also the Native Americans, uh, many Native American tribes, the tallest people in the world come not from Africa, uh, which you would suspect, but from Native American tribes right in North America. And I really? think that comes directly uh, from, uh, yeah, from the giants. Um, so the tallest people in the world um, are from, are uh, found in uh, North America. Um, so I know a lot of people will say, oh, uh, it's Africa or some other country. Um, but the tallest people are in uh, North America. And Little touches on this, uh, Little and Collins touch on this as well. When the European settlers came here, um, they got into uh, disputes and fights with these really, really giant, tall uh, Native Americans. Not as tall as um, what I believe the Hopewell and Erdina were, but they were at least like seven or uh, six and a half, seven, seven and a half feet. And um, it's funny because when the Smithsonian comes to power, um, they literally, uh, Cliff, they freaking airbrush this sketch that this European settler have to make the Native Americans that they fought with look smaller than they were. So when you go back and say, you know, um, these were giant tribes or tri- these tribes had people of above normal height, uh, Smithsonian will say, well, look at the sketch. I, I, I don't see that. but um, the or the written traditions of the uh, European colonists clearly uh, state um, otherwise. So, to some extent, I don't think 
uh, that they ever that they ever left. Um, I don't even think that the flood, uh, you know, uh, well, clearly with the Israelite giants, I don't think the flood uh, basically uh, destroyed all of them. I think, you know, giants pop up in all cultures, Irish, German, uh, Chinese. Um, but in all of these cultures all around, um, the giants are just like in the Bible, violent and oppressive and cruel. And people eventually get sick of this. And so they either rise up against the giants and, and, uh, and, and kill them. So famous story, uh, from, uh, European, uh, folk tales, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. You have the giant who's kind of a jerk there. The people chop down the beanstalk and the giant dies. But that might preserve a race memory of a real actual encounter with some type of, uh, giant who was a jerk, uh, who was an a-hole. Uh, but, um, I think that in the case of the North American giants, uh, what, happened uh with the Hopewell and Adina and we have evidence for it is that they were so darn violent cliff that they killed each other off. So we uh know from basically what archaeologists have found, thousands and thousands and thousands of arrowheads and uh, iron weapons and implements, that there was a massive battle in this region and these guys just killed themselves off. To the point that later uh Native Americans who come in and settle into the region don't really know uh, who the heck these people were. That's how bad they wiped themselves out. So wow. uh, in short, um, the uh, I think the giants um, in some ways live on uh, in the bloodline of certain groups of certain races. Um, on the other hand, uh, the giants um, killed themselves off. They either got people pissed off at them or they killed themselves off through violent warfare. This, 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 uh, this attribute of violence, of cruelty seems to be pervasive um, across the board, not just uh, in the Old Testament with the giants described there, such as Goliath, but in all of these other world traditions as well. Hmm. Uh, you draw on the Book of Mormon uh, to talk a little bit about the giants' background. Does the Book of Mormon uh, reference a certain race of giants, or does it actually identify giants as a, benefact, a benefiting uh, the human species? Yeah, that's a um, that's a good question. I almost didn't put that chapter in because I knew that uh, it would be kind of controversial to bring that as kind of as kind of a source um, into determining who the giants were. But I has but as uh, your question uh, implies, Cliff, there are some things about the Book of Mormon that kind of help us to uh, determine uh, more even more specifically the identity of the North American giants. Um, so. Um, I always like to point this out. Uh, when we think of the Book of Mormon, we think of it being a religious text uh, that, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ uses it. Um, but when Joseph Smith published the Book of Mormon in 1830, first he said that he had translated it from ancient plates that he found. So it's an ancient document. And secondly, he translated it not as a religious text, but as a historical uh, account of the peoples who uh, lived in North America. So um, the original Book of Mormon, the 1830 edition, looks like a, uh, a freaking textbook that you would have found um, sitting on your shelf. It doesn't look like a religious text. There's no chapters. There's no verses. That was brought in later to kind of reconcile it with the Bible. Um, now, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, there is reference to giants in another book, not the Book of Mormon, but the Book of Moses, which gives an alternate account of the flood story. And in the Book of Moses, it said that the giants fought against Noah and sought to take his life. So again, giants are depicted there 
as violent. In the Book of Mormon, to give uh, some background as to the general narrative, um, so the Book of Mormon claims to uh, be an account about a group of uh, Israelite refugees from the time of 586 BCE who mm-hmm. go to North America, and they are descended from the tribe of Joseph. But it's interesting that uh, when we when this group of people are described, they're called the Nephites in the Book of Mormon, and they say they're descended from the tribe of Joseph. When they're described, there's a phrase that's used about them uh, throughout their history. Uh, so they come in around 586 BCE, and they die out around 400, 500 CE. And there's a phrase that's used about them that says that they were tall in stature. And the only place, if you take that phrase and you try to find it in the Old Testament, the only time that phrase is used is when it's referring specifically to giants, which suggests that these Nephites descended from the tribe of Joseph were part of this uh, Egyptian-Israelite hybrid uh, group, these uh, Egypto-Israelite giants uh, that I talk about. But um, the Book of Mormon aids us, providing us uh, with a very specific um, group within the Egypto-Israelite uh, giants, namely a group that sees itself as descending from the tribe of Joseph, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this also accounts for certain features uh, that we find in Hopewell culture. So Hopewell temples, um, which are found on these mounds, uh, Hopewell temples um, are very similar, not to the temple in Jerusalem, but to the Shiloh temple tradition um, that existed uh, before the time of King David. And that Shiloh temple tradition was brought about, um, Shiloh existed in the region of the Ephraimites, who were descendants of Joseph. And so that same Shiloh temple structure is found with the Hopewell sites. And that is a direct, is kind of, I say, uh, evidence in support of the Book of Mormon's claim that these people came from the tribe of Joseph. Okay. Uh, we're getting down to it, Adam. I have a, a couple of questions uh, to kind of finish off. I, I, I'm really curious as a biblical scholar, why did they remove the book of Enoch? Enoch is a fascinating story, but not only just a, a, a story of, of various characters, but also it gets into some very, I want to just say, uh, metaphysical, esoteric topics yeah. that are very profound and very interesting to me. Uh, and it, I, unfortunately, other than yeah. some small areas of the of the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible I can toss. <laughs> but why, why take out Enoch? Yeah, that's, um, I, I, I absolutely love the book of Enoch. I think it's one of the greatest ancient texts that were ever written. Yeah. And even in, it's actually quoted in the New Testament. So in the epistle of Jude, the book of Enoch is quoted. And, um, this uh, this suggests that for the even for the early Christians, the Book of Enoch was considered sacred scripture. Uh, but uh, when Christianity becomes uh, the official religion of the Roman Empire, and uh, they try to get an official canon, a lot of these really great books—not just Enoch, but the Gospel of Thomas, um, the uh, Book of Adam and Eve, um, a lot of the Gnostic Gospels, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. All of these get kicked out because um, the church wants to have a single narrative um, of what they think is the proper understanding of the Bible and of history. Um, so a lot of these books get kicked out. 
Uh, but Enoch doesn't completely die out in the Ethiopian canon. The Book of Enoch is still uh, part of of the canon. Um, but um, the, you won't hear a minister talk about it very often. No, you won't. You won't no, hear no. Uh, traditionalists talk about it because it's just too radical for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, like with the Gnostic scriptures, I think that if um, if Enoch and the Gnostic scriptures were ever re-included, reinserted back into the Bible, that uh, your your layperson would um, have an existential crisis. I think, I think it's too much. It's <laughs> It'd have to go on an ayahuasca trip just to absorb the uh, yeah, content yeah, well, think, from, from Book but, of but, Enoch. But it's, but it's sad, Cliff, because so the, the Bible, so these books were trimmed and the official quote-unquote Old Testament, the official Bible was set up. Um, so that there could be one specific narrative, namely that you can only come to, to God through the death of uh, Jesus. And um, that uh, basically the grace of Jesus is mediated through the priesthood. So the Bible that we have now is really meant to, I know I'm uh, kind of going off tangent, but it's really meant to prop up a type of priesthood, whether that would be in the Roman Catholic Church or uh, what comes later. Um, but when you look at these other books, it kind of, you know, you don't need a priesthood uh, to uh, gain this type of mystical experience, mystical knowledge. You can do it yourself if you know the right things to do. So you can see why these books aren't included in the Bible, because in the official Bible, because if they are, then people are going to say, what, what the hell do I need the priest for? I can't so what you're saying myself. is That's that a legitimate the, question. Yeah, you're, you're saying that the, uh, books like uh, Book of Enoch provide – uh, a guideline for you to, to find your own spirituality uh, and, and actually have your own practice rather than following a priesthood. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very interesting. So it's Enoch who finds enlightenment through gaining knowledge of the watchers. He's not, he doesn't have a priesthood. He's not even described as a priest. But it's his own spiritual journey, his own spiritual enlightenment that he comes into contact with the, watch, the watchers. And I think this goes... You you, met the, you mentioned the ayahuasca. That's exactly what's happening with that. That that's exactly what's going on. So whoever the watchers were that Enoch encountered, that's what with the ayahuasca. Those are and there's been so many documented experiences of this. That's what people encounter uh, with the ayahuasca. Same exact freaking thing. And you don't need a priest. Um, you don't need to go to mass every Sunday and do confession. You just shot down religion. You just shot down religion. <laughs> <laughs> the book I didn't is mean to. I'm a religious person, of course. Uh, but you're also a critical thinker, which is why I have you on the program. Uh, the book that. called "From Egypt to Ohio: A Semitic Origin for the Giants of North America." Adam, why should people buy this book? Give us the decode, the the the, the reason that people need to buy this book. Yes, yeah, so a lot of uh, the books that have been written on giants in North America, um, they, they talk about you know the, the the really awesome stuff that they left behind, but few of them touch on the origin of the giants. Um, and uh, as I think you mentioned earlier in our discussion, um, mainstream scholarship uh, doesn't even want to touch it. They just say, "Here are these mounds. We really don't know who these people are." And so the purpose of my book was to really give a very explicit identification of who these giants were and how they connect uh, with the old world and how they show evidence of cultural diffusionism. Perfect. All right. You can get this book now. It is available on Amazon. I saw it uh, uh, this morning and uh, that it's uh, easily to download either as a 
a digital book or you can get the hard copy, I believe, right? You can get the hard copy? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, great. And uh, Adam, how can people learn more about you? You got a website? What's going on? Tell, tell us a little bit uh, about yes. what's happening. Um, I have an Instagram site called Adam the Giant Guy. I post a lot of uh, images of giants, articles, uh, whatever I can get. Um, so uh, my Instagram site is the best site for that. Okay. Um, I also am a common contributor to Ancient American Magazine. I actually have a review coming out next month of Andrew Collins and Greg Little's book, Denisive and Origins. So I write for them frequently. And cool. then on my Facebook page, uh, which I know uh, we're Facebook friends, so you've seen this. I post a lot of stuff about giants. And there's a great scholar. I think you had him on the show, Fritz Zimmerman, um, who I'm friends with. And he's always posting stuff, which I share on my site. And he posts like really, really up-to-date stuff. Um, so um, yeah. check all those out. All right. Hey, thanks for joining me. And much success on this new book, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Cliff. Always a pleasure. Yeah, Adam is a good interview, and it's a fun subject. Haven't talked about Giants all year so far, so he leads the pack. He's the first one to talk about Giants. You know, it's the, I get back to the, to the whole thing because we've had the who's who of, of Giants authors and experts on the program uh, dating back to one of the first shows with Robert uh, 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 Richard Dewhurst who wrote uh, a book on the Giants back in 2015 but the thing is that I come down to this you know let's get a skeleton let's see a bone I want I want some uh, 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 a skull I want something even clothing from a 13-foot human would be cool. I just want more, some more evidence. And it's fun to talk about. It's fun to speculate. And we blame the Smithsonian for destroying the bones. Um, I think, Jesus, was it a year ago we heard from somebody who said that they had talked to a uh, person at the Smithsonian and they said that uh, they had heard about giant bones, but uh, when they went to go check them out, they disintegrated or they were thrown away. I mean, who knows if it's true or not? It just gets crazier and crazier. But, I mean, uh, I've spoken to Hugh Newman about this. I've spoken to Jim Vieira about this. I've spoken to Greg, Dr. Greg Little about this. Get me some bones so we can, you know, feel like hell. These were actual uh, beings that walked the earth. Uh, so, I mean, that's just it. Uh, it, it, it the proof uh, is in what we see when it comes to these gigantic humans. So always fun to talk to Adam. And uh, again, you can get his book on Amazon from Egypt to Ohio. He actually updated it. He mentioned to me just before we got, I did the interview that he had another version that he had, uh, that he had replaced the first version with. So, and I don't have that version. All I have is this uh, copy, which was uh, the first edition, I guess. So I don't know if that means that he sold out and he needed to update it. And in the update, he has revised the book. But I do know that uh, it is available on Amazon and other places where you get books online. So check it out. From Egypt to Ohio by Adam Stokes. S-T-O-K-E-S. All right. That was fun. If you're enjoying Earth Ancients, please consider becoming a subscriber. For 
as little as $5 a month, you support the work we do here on Earth Ancients. And, you know, it's been tough. Uh, we have had a break in our quarantine series because one of our uh, support people couldn't do it anymore. And so it's, it's, it's harder to, to, do, to do the quarantine. I'm down to doing it once a week. So I would really appreciate a, uh, a subscription, a donation. Anything you could give would be helpful. But $5 a month really keeps the lights on, keeps everything moving so we can do the show each week. So to become a subscriber, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Earth Ancients and subscribe. Hey, we also have a whole bunch of really cool stuff on the uh, Patreon page. We have some um, ebooks you download. We have some unpublished interviews, and we have some kind of cool galleries. So I want to thank the following people for becoming subscribers in the month of April. I want to thank uh, Brian Burkhard, Adam Lindquist, Eric Schell, Ross Bennett, Rick Todd, Monica Pullman, Marshall Pike, and Daniel Sullivan. You guys rock. I really appreciate your patronage and your subscription, and it really helps uh, with the programming. I appreciate it. Okay, that's it for this week, and I want to thank uh, Jim Dale, as always, and Bruce Fenton for doing an outstanding job and making the show what it is. All right, stay safe, self-quarantine, and we'll talk to you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.